Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Welcome back to the service. I'm Guy Espiner, and I'm John Daniel. Sorry about the radio silence. We've gone dark in Intel parlance. <laughs> yeah. So Guy's doing some uh, spy jokes. So we're <laughs> feeling a little bit more relaxed. Uh, but we. Well, gonna... no one's been locked up, which is good. <laughs> that is good. Yes. Or even apparently particularly embarrassed, although. There are some stories that we've been following up that uh, probably have brought a few blushes to the SIS. Yes. Since the service came out back in June, telling the story of a break-in by New Zealand's Security Intelligence Service into the Czechoslovakian Embassy in Wellington, we've been following a number of leads. We've been gleaning more details, even rethinking some of our initial conclusions, which is why we wanted to come back to you with this follow-up episode. First, we want to say thank you all for listening and thanks to those who've been in touch. The response from around the world has been quite phenomenal. So over the past few months, we've been working on stories from our initial research over 2019 that weren't quite ready to go until now and some stories that have come to us since. We will tell you about those today. There is a serious sexual offender that the SIS was targeting but did not tell the police and allowed this abuse to continue for many years. And there's also a new story today about a very famous New Zealand poet who was under surveillance by the SIS. And we also have uh, some strong reaction from one of the uh, countries whose embassies appears to have been targeted. We did. Let's start with this and let's remind people about the new embassy break-ins we found out about. The SIS broke into the Indian High Commission for MI6 and the Iranian Embassy for the CIA in the late 1980s and early 90s to photograph code books, plant bugs and steal communications. That was the news as reported by RNZ on July 1. We got breaking news on that story because Operation Horoscope, which was done by the SIS and the CIA targeting the Iranian Embassy, um, our producer Tim Watkin had been uh, badgering. Uh, the Iranian embassy for a response and he's got one (laughs) they say that uh, if this was in fact the case that the SIS did break the Vienna Convention in this uh, way that they quote reserve the right to take legal action they do go on to say that New Zealand and Iran have had brilliant relations and bilateral cooperation over 50 odd years and so that they would be surprised about this and they seem to say that it could be unrealistic that um, uh, New Zealand and the CIA have cooperated on this. Um, I hate to tell you, um, Iran, but it happened. Yeah. So one of the things about these subsequent news stories, now the Czech embassy was kind of one thing because as we described, Czechoslovakia as a country no longer really exists and the context for that has changed enormously. But Iran and India are both sovereign states who 
uh, very much exist and supposedly have very friendly relationships with New Zealand. Now, I think that puts us in quite a difficult position, I would have thought, but we haven't really heard that much about diplomatic pressure from from these states. Sorry to interrupt, guys. <laughs> this um, is Tim Watkin, our executive <laughs> producer, who, who, who never sleeps. I'm going to um, come and lean over you, Guyan. Um, and hopefully not pop into the mic. But um, you know that we had that reaction from the Iranian embassy. Um, we now have one from the Indian embassy, literally, um, as we were recording now. It's just happened. Um, so the uh, second secretary who I was speaking oh, to there at the High Commission says, Dear Tim, I can confirm to you that the matter, that is the matter of the, um, the break-in to the Indian embassy, um, the matter has been taken up with the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, requesting them to look into the matter. We have nothing more to add at this point in time. Mm, interesting. So they have gone to the New Zealand government agency. It's interesting because um, I, I let it lie. I went to the Indian and Iranian embassies, but Tim Watkin has gone back and pushed, and it looks like uh, behind the scenes um, they have uh, ha- had real pushback. I guess they feel like that they have to really in some ways, don't they? It, it, it's a funny sort of smoke and mirrors game. As you'd expect, that, they'd expect that this sort of thing would happen, but if it is called out in public and exposed in public, then I guess they feel obligated that they have to push back in some way, right? That's right. I think we what we've seen is that an awful lot of things happen under the surface, but once it breaks the surface, you have to do something about it. Yeah, and they can't just yeah, so they can't just let it lie. Um but everyone's kind of playing their part in, in a game, really, aren't they? Because there's no doubt that um, the Iranians and the Indians, given the opportunity, um, they have their own intelligence officers, they have their own uh, military uh, intelligence, and I'm sure if they saw any chink in the New Zealand armour, they'd be in there as well. So they have to, what, feign surprise almost? Yeah, I get that impression that, uh, yes, we're all playing the great game. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to do it. It's another thing for people to find out about it, right? Which leads you to that classic question in any spy story is who knew what and when? What did the Prime Ministers know? Now, for these two operations, one is Operation Dunnage, where they targeted the Indian Embassy and they photographed hundreds of pages of code books, sent them back to London for MI6. And the other, as we say, is Operation Horoscope, which was targeting the Iranian Embassy with the CIA. Now, New Zealanders, many will know, and some overseas people will know too, we had two Prime Ministers that covered this period, really, uh, Geoffrey Palmer and Jim Bolger. Uh, both are, thankfully, still very much alive and kicking. And so we talked to both of them, and we asked uh, Sir Geoffrey Palmer if he knew or signed off on those operations. If it was at the time I was Prime Minister, I most certainly should have been. None of that could be done under the existing law, it seems to me, uh, quite apart from the breaches of the Vienna Convention, um, you've got breaches of New Zealand law there, I would have thought. You've got breaches of human rights. I think New Zealand should be in the position of saying it follows all the legal requirements of its own legislation. And it does seem to me that those would rule this out. They've got to act in accordance with New Zealand law. They've got to follow all human rights obligations uh, that are contained in New Zealand law. Uh, they have to act with integrity. So maybe Iran will want to hire Geoffrey Palmer. Are they are going to take legal action? Um, he's pretty clear on that. But the main point is, he said, look, I don't know anything about it, didn't sign it, didn't know about it. So he put it to Jim Bolger, who was the other Prime Minister. Did he know or sign off on those operations? 
Uh, well, I have to say I have no recollection of that ever hitting my desk, and if it did, I'd have to say uh, my memory's not gone yet. I'd be very surprised if uh, I was ever advised of any such event. Mm. I have no recollection, and that's, that's not just a brush off. No. Uh, and I just... That's, you, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. So there you go, John. Two Prime Ministers didn't know about it, they say. And I don't know about you, but I want to believe them at least. They sound like they're genuine. They say they did not know, they did not sign off on these two operations. What do you think that tells us? Well, what I can say is that while you were investigating this, I had my own discussion around this topic with a highly placed government source who said to me, who, who actually, when I put the question to him, went a sort of shade of puce and stiffened and said, are you wearing a wire? Then rambled off on some story about the five eyes, the importance of being in that. Eventually came back to the point that he felt these Prime Ministers had just said what they felt they had to say. So you'd put it to him, you know, did we break into the Indian Embassy? Did we break into the Iranian Embassy? And he wanted to know whether you were wearing a wire. Um, but he was basically, what, giving you the um, the plausible deniability line? or Yes, well, I think uh, the way I put it to him was that we had a moral dilemma in the sense that we weren't sure exactly how much of the story we could stand up at that point. And it was difficult to report on it, but we felt that it was important to report on it. So his response was very much uh, uh, the point around the importance of being in the Five Eyes and doing what you have to do to stay in that club. Mm. What I have learned about the way these warrants uh, operate is that Prime Ministers are not given specific information. You might get asked to sign off on an operation that talks about intercepting communications or uh, obtaining communications, but you don't know whether that's literally tapping into someone's phone or... you know, breaking down the front door. And so that when you, get, in later years, go back and ask a Prime Minister, they may well um, be able to quite comfortably say, well, I didn't know that we were breaking into an embassy. Uh, so I guess that is that plausible deniability thing, right? You, you, you tell a Prime Minister as, as much as you need to get authorisation, but not enough f- to put him or her in a compromising situation. Yeah, and you'll remember one conversation that we had with a a high-ranking government official who dealt with these kinds of cases with prime ministers, and they said, the point they made was that there are different kinds of prime ministers. So some want to know and some don't. That's right. (laughs) So one person was very good at saying, yes, give me this information, I want to know, and I will sign off on it. And another prime minister was uh, a little bit more definite about it, much preferred to say, I'm not sure I need to know about this and pushed it off off the desk. Mm. But no matter who the Prime Minister, it's a lifelong obligation to keep it secret. I talked to one MP who used to be on that uh, SIS committee, had uh, his role had changed, and he got um, a letter from the SIS said, um, y- you know, um, great, you did a really good job, um, good luck in your new career. And by the way, you're never to say anything about any of the stuff you saw. So it is a lifelong obligation.
And remember, we did ask Gerald Hensley about how this all works with Prime Ministers, how it would be signed off by Prime Ministers, how this would all work. Now, you'll remember Gerald Hensley from the Service podcast. He was the chair of the Intelligence Council in the mid-1980s. He was chief of staff to several Prime Ministers. Here's what he said. Any sensitive operation, uh, the Prime Minister's approval had to be got. I would have thought in a sort of constitutional sense, but in the practical sense, if it went wrong, the political storm might uh, you know, be very large. And he had to or she would have to know that the, the risk was there and decide that the risk was acceptable. Because what seems an acceptable risk to his advisers might to the Prime Minister seem definitely a no-no. So yes, always signed off on anything at all sensitive either signed off literally or briefed and uh, didn't disagree. Now, that was Gerald Hensley responding to our questions uh, about that Czech embassy raid. Remember, that was the raid that New Zealand's SIS undertook with the MI6 to steal the Warsaw Pact codes. That was an operation that took place in 1986. We know that. Now, the unresolved question of the whole podcast was, did they get them? Now... My stepfather, Jim, Jim Stewart, he said they did. But Gerald Hensley and a former intelligence officer who worked with my stepfather, we called him Ben, he said they didn't. Let's hear that again. The operation was a complete failure, despite all the efforts we went into it. And um, it was... um, the material we're looking for wasn't actually there. Oh. <laughs> well, I wish you'd told me that a bit earlier. <laughs> it's, uh, I think somebody's exaggerated along the line. So that was Ben's view. Bringing you down to earth somewhat. Well, yeah. It was devast- <laughs> I was devastated. Yeah, gut punch. Absolutely. I remember at the time, literally, I was like kind of winded. Um, now, the interesting thing was after this podcast aired, a variety of people got in touch. One of them was a former intelligence officer who knew, obviously, about the way the SIS operates. Uh, And he made a general point at the start of uh, the email saying that lying is a skill uh, and it's kind of the stock and trade of the intelligence officer. But he went on to make the point that he felt that we had been given a line from the agreed playbook. Let's remind ourselves what you thought by the time we got to the end of the podcast, what your feelings were about whether Jim had told me the truth or not. I don't know. If it it was gun to the head staff, if I was forced to choose, I'd say they didn't get the codes. But I can also see why the service might put up a smokescreen here. So to be honest, who knows? Who knows? I was pretty gutted by that actually at the time as well because we'd been through a lot together and I thought you might have been able to see it from my point of view but we've been talking about this obviously over the last few months and I wonder whether you've changed your mind I have um, I guess I had I went for the, the balance of probabilities sorry to get all legal on you but um, as a journalist you're always looking at what you can definitely say and we've been really rigorous about anything we've, we've published as news stories about what we can prove, and I didn't feel that we could could prove that. And I did hedge my bets a little bit there, didn't I, listening back to it. But I have changed my mind, and on the balance of probabilities, I think they did 
get the codes. Um, and I say that because I've learned more about the operations they did against other embassies, about the fact that they did get into embassies and photograph code books. And also, I can't say too much about it, but from intelligence officers I have spoken to, I think there is a highly likely case that they did photograph code books of the Warsaw Pact codes from the Czech Embassy. And if I was laying my bed again now, I'd say that they did get the codes. I'll take that as an apology. <laughs> what, what's that saying about uh, if the evidence changes, then my opinions change too. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do feel I do feel good about. It. I feel that we have resolved that, which is part of the reason we're doing this, right? Part of the reason we're recording this epilogue now. Totally. For me, it's the, it's really the main reason. I mean, all these other little bits of stories that have come out uh, are important and interesting yeah. around the the story of the service. I don't know. I mean, and and what we don't we don't know the significance of this. I guess when I first embarked on this journey, I was thinking, wow, if we got the Warsaw Pact code, we would have brought the Berlin Wall down, and maybe New Zealand helped do that. And now I had a sort of a more modest view that these uh, codes may have only been, you know, day codes or week codes, and allowed you uh, to crack um, codes for a certain amount of time. Not insignificant, but still for for a short amount of time. Right. Well, remember that. Some of the intel we have now is that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of these one-time pads that were photographed. So I think that's interesting. The other thing is that, as we discussed in episode five, you then open up the possibility of being able to read a pattern into codes and the way that uh, messages are transmitted around the world. And that allows your code breakers an enormous opportunity to continue to open up access, if not to every single message, then to bits of, you know, you ungarble things and you get an insight. And I think the reaction that we got from all of our people, Rory Cormack, Paul Buchanan, Sir Bruce Ferguson, people who know this world, was that they were astonished at the size of the prize. And I think the other thing that really speaks to it is the fact that obviously MI6 come back repeatedly to do the yeah, Indian the High Commission. Guys. And and yes. that's right. And Albie, as we understand, who, who he's the he's the he's the safe cracker. He's the safe cracker who stayed for with MI6, me. six. Who stayed in your bedroom? He 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 stayed with us. And it appears that his father wasn't just a safe cracker. You remember his? That seems to be how he got into the business. But his father had something to do with making a lock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is where it lapses and bleeds, perhaps into legend. Um, but the, I, I talked to a number of intelligence officers about this character, um, and it sounds like he comes from a lock um, picking, lock breaking family. His father apparently um, even designed and um, made a lock. And when you talk to these guys who are nerds about um, picking locks, quite incredible how they make impressions in steel and how they actually do this stuff. Um, Quite amazing, but yeah, it, it does sound like the guy who stayed with you came from quite a prestigious family of lock pickers and safe crackers. Right, so he's he is like a, a a very top line expert, and he's sent out to New Zealand repeatedly. Now, I think that tells us something about the size of the operations and the importance of what they were doing. Because remember, the stakes every time you go in, the capacity for a cock up is is you know is high. 
and the ramifications are disaster. So I think you were, you, we, we were getting a lot, and I think this is a kind of happy hunting ground here in New Zealand for the Five Eyes, for CIA, for MI6, working through and with New Zealand's SIS. I guess the other big question is whether this still happens today. It was something that we obviously did put to uh, one of the other Prime Ministers we spoke to, Helen Clark, who was Prime Minister from 1999 to 2008. Were you ever asked as Prime Minister to sign off on a break-in to a foreign embassy in New Zealand? I couldn't comment on that. That's still something that must stay secret? Couldn't comment. Mm. That sounds like a a yes. (laughs) Well, isn't it neither confirm nor deny? (laughs) (laughs) You've you've learned that lesson well. So it still happens broadly, does it? Who knows? (laughs) So that was... Helen Clark, uh, decidedly non-committal, <laughs> uh, but we also discussed the possibility that perhaps this kind of thing happened to us. Yeah, and I found out a bit more about that too uh, along the way. Certainly um, sources have told me that in the 80s, communications from the New Zealand Embassy in Moscow were compromised. Uh, There's no doubt about that. And the explanation, or one of the possible explanations, is very fascinating to me. And it is that the New Zealand intelligence community considered that the the Russians may have been uh, practising something called illumination. Now, you need to Google this, right, because I just am not a technical expert. Google the thing and illumination. Now, it happened to the Americans, and the Russians may well have done it to New Zealand as well. Basically, what you do is you have an object in a room. Um, It may have a little sort of device that's acting as an antenna, but no power source, nothing in terms of wires or anything like that. It's basically a passive object. You ask what it is. In the American case, and it was planted in 1945, and it well, sat it was, there till it 1952. Given. It was given, it was wasn't a it? Gift. It was a gift. Yep, and it was the great seal of the US. You know, the big eagle thing? The Russians gave it to the American ambassador at the time, just after the first, uh, Second World War, 1945, and it sat there for seven years. But it was hoovering up communications in its own uh, strange way. And what you do is you fire radio waves at it to illuminate it and it sort of it vibrates at at a right frequency if you fire radio waves at it and the sound waves which is in this case the voices of the people in the room they can be relayed to a receiver and that could be in a caravan uh, parked off site it's a stunningly simple and brilliant tactic and it seems as if New Zealand was the victim here they certainly thought that this was a tactic that the Russians were using. So I know several things. New Zealand communications were compromised at the Russian embassy. I we know, do know I, that. I know right? that, yes. Yes, they were. I'm satisfied about that. In terms of illumination, they think that this was a possible and probable uh, tactic used, but I cannot say that that definitely happened. But it's certainly one that the intelligence community thought was a likely uh, strand of a possibility of what had happened here, which is pretty amazing, really, and, and interesting when you think about it. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it makes <laughs> sense, isn't it, that this extraordinary thing um, was used against the Americans, and why wouldn't they have used it everywhere else? It, it lines up slightly with the same idea about um, getting the codes in New Zealand, doesn't it, in the sense that if you do it once and it works, 
why wouldn't you do it again and again? Yeah, and it also um, makes you realise why, you know, we've been frustrated about why they're keeping these things secret uh, many decades on. Now, the thing isn't secret, it's on the internet, and uh, the Americans knew and presented it to the United Nations, actually, uh, I think, at the time, I think in 1960. Go Google it, it's a, there's an interesting history about this. But yeah, it goes to the, the mode of operation, that that's what they, they don't like you to know, that, that that's what their tactics are. Speaking of tactics and uh, the world of intelligence, you have been welcomed into the wilderness of mirrors uh, to some extent over the last year. You've met with various sources, intelligence contacts, uh, and you, you've come away quite grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this grey hair has been with me for a while. But, um, yeah, I mean, you do... You don't want to get paranoid, but you do um, You do look at the world uh, a different way. I remember one time when I was going to meet uh, an intelligence source and I'd rented a car and the car was just sitting in, in, a, in a parking lot at an airport, so not surrounded by any other cars and nowhere near any taxi ranks or anything like this. It was an unmarked, white, modest car provided by Radio New Zealand, so nothing flash. <laughs> and um, I was in the front seat uh, getting organised, and a woman got into the back of the car and sat in the back of the car and said, oh, sorry, I thought this was my car. <laughs> and I sort of went, oh, well, no, that's cool. And she got out of the car and I sat there um, and for a, half a minute thinking, that was pretty weird. And I got out of the car and went to look for her and she, she, was, she was gone. Um, Your brain changes, doesn't it, the way you think yeah, about the Yeah, and look, world. it could have been nothing. I mean, if it was a marked cab and someone had jumped in, I wouldn't have been suspicious. But it did seem pretty odd. And also the fact that I was driving to meet this intelligence source seemed uh, quite quite strange. Um, and anyway, I went off to meet uh, this, this person and, and we spoke for a number of hours. And he was talking about the SIS and the way it operates and surveillance. And I, I did say, look, do you, think, do you think they are surveilling me? Do you think that they're keeping an eye on, on what we're doing? And he said, no doubt, that's why I've taken this seat with my back to the window, because if there are long-range photographers, they'll get you and not me. And again, look, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to whack the tinfoil hat on your head, um, but you do, you, you do look at the world in in, in a different way when you start um, delving into this. And I guess if they felt that we were putting stuff out that was going to damage their operations, then they would be worried about that. We've been pretty careful about that. We've taken that um, responsibility seriously as well, all the way through. But um, yeah, you do tend to look at the world in a different way. It is interesting, uh, isn't it, that reference to the tinfoil hat, the kind of, in an age of conspiracy theories uh, and discussion of the deep state, um, just how secret these things have been kept for so long and how they imply perhaps other deeper, darker secrets. Now, what, what, are, we, what are we supposed to do with these? How do we... How do we cope with that and how do we make sure that the right information gets out? Well, I think one of the really interesting things is that people say this wild thing um, about 
an embassy break-in or something that you'd never known about. Oh, that must be a conspiracy theory because there's no way you could keep it secret for 30 years. But once you realise how intelligence agencies operate in cells with only a very, very few people knowing, you realise you can keep secrets for that long. And one of the amazing things to me, when we started coming out with these uh, embassy break-ins, the Czech embassy, the Iranian embassy, the Indian embassy... You had people coming forward saying, oh, is that what I was doing at the time? They, they literally did not know. And you go to people, and it, you know, you'd be questioning yourself, you know, this can't have happened because I talked to the Deputy Prime Minister and he didn't know. Mm. Well, it's the need-to-know basis, and that is how you keep a secret, as, as you know. You, um, a secret is a thing you tell maybe one other person. Once you start telling more, um, it, starts, it starts to branch out. But, hey, the other big thing that happened is that people started to get in touch Obviously, you talked about some of them. I think you had a guy who wanted to get into the service, didn't you? That's right, yeah. I was asked uh, what might be the correct career pathway. Now, the good news for him is that uh, I think they're advertising at the moment, so it should be reasonably yeah, straightforward. Yeah. Did you tell him that the best way was to get born into a family of spies? <laughs> well, they haven't tapped me on the on the shoulder, not at all. Yeah, they? they do have a file on you. It's a rather modest file, though, wasn't it? No, no. I, I was, was a bit in, small. I was in someone else's file. <laughs> People asked us. They said, hey... I wonder if they spied on me. I had people coming to me asking this, including a guy called Rupert Glover. Now, he's a prominent Christchurch lawyer, and he's the son of Dennis Glover, one of the most celebrated poets New Zealand has ever produced. Our overseas audience might not have heard of Dennis Glover, although he's a pretty, he's a pretty well-renowned poet. Many of our domestic audience will, and they'll remember this, um, perhaps his most famous poem, The Magpies. When Tom and Elizabeth took the farm, the bracken made their bed. And quaddle oodle huddle waddle doodle, the magpies said. Tom's hand was strong to the plough, Elizabeth's lips were red. And quaddle oodle huddle waddle doodle, the magpies said. You do a quarter lord ladle waddle doodle, don't you? <laughs> I, I go the other way. My quarter lord loodles um, incorrectly. I, I studied think. that poem at university as I was studying Russian literature as well. Oh, well. In the 80s. Could have but, made you a um, target. Um, mm. It's quite an anti capitalist poem, actually, I think, uh, but we might come back to that later on the importance of culture. Now, let's go back. So, Rupert Glover mm. is now a successful lawyer. He's got in touch with you, and you suggest. A course of action for him. Yeah, that's right, because um, it's difficult to get information out of the SIS, but one of the things you can do is use the Privacy Act and ask for your personal file. Now, if anyone's listening and thinks that they may have been spied on, you can do that. And there's a good link on the website. You go fire, fire through a request and they will have to respond. And if it's really interesting, give it to me. Um, you'll find me on Twitter pretty easily. I'll, I'll, I'll spruik myself again at the end of the podcast. But he did this. I, t- I said, look, this is how you do it. He asked for the file and he gets it back. And it shows that, yes, they had a pretty significant file on his father and that also opened a file on the son, Rupert himself. So, yeah, let's hear hear a bit from um, Rupert. Now, Dennis, just a background here, Dennis Glover died in 1980. And, John, you've looked quite a lot at this. Um, He was, and let's hear a bit from um, Rupert first, but this guy, Dennis the dad, was a bit of a war hero, wasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. He's on those convoys to Mamansk that the British Navy undertake at the, uh, in the sort of very dark years of World War II. But let's hear from Rupert Glover first. 
he was pretty proud of the fact that he'd been on the Murmansk convoys up to Russia and he'd, he'd been to Murmansk and so forth. And for some reason, the Russians picked up on this. I don't know. They must have uh, had their antennae out for New Zealanders who'd played their part in the, in the Second World War. And they contacted Dennis, and he was a great fan of vodka, as you know, and they would bring vodka around to him, and he made friends with certain people at the Russian embassy. And then they offered him a trip to Russia, um, and he was very proud of that. And there are photographs of him on Russian warships wearing Russian caps and I think I've still got his cap actually with the with the, the star and or the, the sickle and uh, star and sickle or whatever they have uh, on it and um, that really I think was the limit of his involvement with them. I don't think that they. I mean, certainly he never mentioned to me that they went beyond this, and I don't think that he was any kind of a security interest to them. I think it was more a publicity thing myself. But, but I could be wrong. But that's. The view I take of it. That's Rupert Glover talking about his father, Dennis, uh, meeting with Russians. But in particular, let's just have a look at that history of the Arctic convoys. The naval fleets, the merchant navy fleets, that basically kept Russia alive through those very dark days of the Second World War. The Royal Navy accompanied merchant uh, ships that came from both America and and Britain, uh, taking weapons, uh, grain, any, anything you could use. And just to remind people, that we're allies at this point, right? Absolutely. This, yeah, this is before the, the Cold War, started at the end of the Second World War, so so America and Russia and, and, and Britain and New Zealand, we're all on the same side fighting the Nazis. And, and at the same time, this is a very cold part of the war, small sea, because you're going through the Arctic, and it is devastatingly tough. I mean, I can remember reading books about this as a kid, uh, HMS Ulysses by Alistair MacLean, just an extraordinary story of how hard it was. So Dennis Glover, who goes on to become one of our poets, is on these boats. He's actually on um, HMS Onslaught. It's a destroyer. Now, in one of these uh, convoys, less than half of the merchant ships get through. I mean, that, you know, these are kind of suicide runs. Um, you know, numbers of them are sunk. It's, it, it's a very tough gig. But one of the interesting things is that they are saved for some time, or, or at least protected, by the ultra uh, people at Bletchley Park, who managed to crack the German codes and managed to ward off, or at least warn, these fleets as to the attacks that are taking place on them by the German Navy. So, in fact, and of course part of the Enigma story, is stolen codebooks. So Dennis Glover was in some way perhaps protected by uh, by these stolen codes. It's very interesting when you think about this whole thing. Churchill himself put journalists and even painters on these boats because it was such a strong part of propaganda, this allied nature of Russia and Soviet Russia and Great Britain together fighting against the Nazis. So over this period, obviously Dennis Glover would develop some sort of feelings for these people who he's helping out. I mean, he's risking his life to help out the Russians. Uh, and then later on, he um, uh, the D-Day landings in Normandy, he's the commander of a landing craft there, and he's awarded the DSC, a, you know, a, a medal. So he's a really legit war hero before he becomes a, a very well-known poet. Now, you have something from his file, well, I think. That's right. So, uh, 
And fascinating to hear you put it like that, because he, he is, he's a legit war hero, yet he's under surveillance by the State Intelligence Agency. I've got his file here in my, in my hand, or at least a few pages of it. Glover, a poet, literary critic and writer, has been of marginal security interest over a number of years, this uh, uh, note from the SIS says. Uh, they go on to say that he had a full page of his poetry published in the Soviet News, and they're a bit suspicious about that, that he's attended functions at the Soviet Embassy, and that he had been in opposition to the Vietnam. Nah, more. Well, that's not um, marking him out. And here's possibly my favourite bit of the file. On occasions, Glover has caused embarrassment by making provocative remarks, usually been intoxicated. He is possibly an alcoholic. Well, that's not something that uh, Rupert actually uh, denies himself. But what he does deny is that uh, his father was a security threat. There's no way that my father could have done anything to uh, threaten the security of New Zealand, nor would have done anything to threaten the security of New Zealand. I mean, he didn't particularly care for uh, New Zealand and New Zealanders in the sense that he was patriotic, but uh, he would certainly have stuck up for us in any situation where he thought it was necessary, and I think that... uh, they, they probably had no good grounds for doing it. I kind of agree with this. I see this in line with Keith Locke uh, and Richard Northey, both of whom we examined in the podcast and subsequent stories. Keith Locke wasn't in the actual podcast, but Richard Northey was. They're both MPs of the left, uh, one in the Green Party, Keith Locke, and Richard Northey, who was a Labour Party MP. And it's my feeling that these people were spied on for their political views. Yes, it was the Cold War, but were they national security threats? Um, the SIS job is to try to keep New Zealand safe. Um, so I, my own personal opinion is it doesn't feel justified to me. OK, well, I have to say I'm not sure that that is the case. I think that you've got a legit war hero who is also one of our most famous poets, has a big influence on the culture, uh, and I think it would, you know, he's obviously meeting with people from the Russian embassy. He's vulnerable because he drinks and, I understand, womanises to some extent. You know, Gee, that uh, would have marked him out, wouldn't it, <laughs> in those days? In the 70s. Um, well, I, look, I think he is a potential risk, and there's a sort of subtlety. It's not necessarily, I don't think anyone's saying he's, he's, he's a spy, but I think there's potential for him to be what they call a useful idiot. Not that I'm saying that he, he, he would have been an idiot at all, but he's exploitable as someone who has a profile and an influence on the culture. So you could argue that it's gross negligence not to at least have an eye on him. He wasn't prosecuted. No, uh, interesting. Well, they actually destroyed his file in 1982, a couple of years after he died, so we're only just left with some snippets of it, so that's interesting. We don't have the whole file, so we can't tell uh, what other intelligence they did gather on him. But you you, you raised the point about culture there a couple of times. Uh, Take a listen now to Rupert describing the kind of poetry that his father, Dennis Glover, was writing. When Dennis, in the 30s, when Dennis first started publishing, um, a lot of the poetry that was being published in New Zealand and a lot of the writing for that matter in general was um, Britain-based, Britain-oriented, and uh, he thought it was high time we had something indigenous, and that's what he did. And he set out to write New Zealand poetry. He did, Alan Kernow did, um, Ron Mason did. Rex Fairburn did, and they they were the beginning of a new school of truly New Zealand stuff. And um, that's what those poems were about. Now, the whole point of what we're hearing there is that New Zealand is moving away from Britain culturally towards independence of cultural thought. Now, you'll remember the quote, where Britain goes, we go, the South African War, the Boer War, 
1899, New Zealand Every goes without go. question, yeah. 1914, off we go, yeah. 1939, off we go. So even the Falklands in 82, we send a frigate to help out. So, And at the same time, as New Zealand's independent way of thinking about itself is growing, we start to push back against the Vietnam War, we... we end up in a situation where we go nuclear free. And I think you tie a lot of that to the underlying way that New Zealand starts to think about itself. And I think um, it would be naive not to recognise that this sort of stuff is is kind of the air that we breathe. And it has a deep, deep impact on the way we think about ourselves. Yeah. Now, the, you, you'll remember we were talking about uh, Wind of Change. Yeah, so. Wind of Change, which which um, which we, we, we loved. Um, is, a, is a great podcast based on this delicious question of whether the CIA uh, wrote a Scorpion song. This song had been written by the CIA to insert into the Soviet Union to encourage change. Love that podcast, and but broadly, and we won't bang on about this too much. But th- this idea of soft power and the use of cultural icons to shift opinion—that is a whole thing that moves under the surface of intelligence work, isn't it? And and it has been used. I mean, e- even if that was unresolved in that podcast, and maybe the CIA didn't write that song, but they certainly did. Uh, Use cultural icons to further American interests. They right? helped. They sent Louis Armstrong to Africa in the fifties. I think Nina Simone, even although she didn't know it herself, as it come, you know, as described in that Wind of Change podcast, she was sent to Africa effectively, kind of to do PR for this, you know, for an American state that still had for the American Republic that still had Jim Crow laws in the South and you know really wasn't particularly pro African American. Hey, let's get moving on to the last big revelation that um, we're going to bring you since we last caught up on the service. And that is a story that we published and broadcast on RNZ Radio New Zealand. The SIS knew a young woman was being sexually abused by her father but failed to lodge a complaint with the police, effectively allowing the abuse to continue for years. So that is the intro to the story being read out on uh, Morning Report, uh, RNZ's uh, weekday morning news programme. This, John, cast them in in a different light. Right, we we've had this, the embassy break-in stories. You can understand that they're gathering intelligence against other countries and wanting to pick that up and share it with their Five Eyes partners. On this occasion, we have a man who's under surveillance by the SIS, being targeted by the SIS. They break into his home. They gather photographic evidence that he is in an abusive and um, sexually abusive, incestuous relationship with his daughter, yet they don't do anything about it, and they don't file a complaint with the police, it means that the abuse against this victim, awful abuse, a very, very serious sexual abuse, continues for a number of years. It looks pretty bad for them, doesn't it? Yeah, look, having spoken to former officers about this, their argument is or was that there were some mitigating circumstances. We can't go into the too much of the detail around that. But look, no question, terrible error of judgment on on behalf of, of the SIS, its officers and its hierarchy, and I think that's acknowledged now. 
Yes, they did put a statement out saying they were deeply concerned about it. Um, hey, I, I spoke to the Minister of um, in, responsible for the SIS, Andrew Little, about this case. Here's what he said. Apart from being extraordinarily disappointed that uh, the moral framework under which various people would have been operating at the time um, meant they didn't refer it to the police. Um, it's certainly a serious breach of a moral duty if, if anybody was aware that there was an ongoing serious criminal offence uh, taking place that ought to have been referred to the police. It raises some other things that we should um, briefly touch on, which is you really are relying on the integrity of those involved, aren't you? Because even in the New Zealand system where you have a watchdog, uh, the report on this is classified and maybe some of it will be released one day. I'm hoping it will be. Um, but the report itself is classified. So what the SIS did, they aren't going to tell you about. And then when you go to the watchdog and the watchdog writes a report, well, that's secret too. So how do you test the stuff? That's right. It's all kind of locked up in a black box that none of us... <laughs> Buried get, at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, that none of us get to see from the outside. Um, we talked to... Kip Bennett's about this now. He wasn't addressing yeah. this uh, this sex abuse this case. case no. uh, but his point was you have to rely on the people. Mm, the people. So let's listen to this now. This is Kip Bennett's. You'll remember him from the Service Podcast series. He was a former intelligence officer with the New Zealand SIS. We interviewed him at some length in the series. Here's what he said You really do have to rely on the integrity of the people in your intelligence service. And in that regard, I've always thought that New Zealand has been well served. So you will come across stuff that is really of no intelligence value. It might be scuttlebutt, it might be whatever, but it's of no intelligence value and, and you just discount that and discard that. And, and you accept that people have, you know, people have rights and freedoms and, and what's the point in having a security service if, you, if, you actually, if you're actually impinging on those rights and privileges? So sometimes I guess they were... The sorts of information that we got that was not strictly what we needed, we ignored. And, and that, that always happened in my time. I have no doubt it happens today. I really like Kit Bennett's and I like talking to him and I agree with some of what he says there, but I disagree as well with other parts. I don't think it's enough just to trust them and, and I think we need to be able to verify. And I get it that we can't say, you know, oh, we were breaking into such and such an embassy and, oh, this is the, the uh, tactics we used against such and such a country. I get all that. But I think at times when um, you, you stuff up or it's actually not about security that you have to to front up because you have to you you have to earn that trust and we have to be able to verify it and I'm worried that you use this cloak of secrecy over everything so that you just say oh well it's national security so I can't possibly talk about that so I, I don't think that trust is enough I think we need to verify well the other issue is that these people are dealing with challenges to our democracy, they're talking about you know running the security of our country, and we don't really understand the stakes of that. We don't because it's in this black box at the bottom of the ocean. We don't ever really get to understand how these threats might hit up against the lives that we want to lead here in New Zealand. Mm. 
doesn't stop us trying though and we're going to uh, go on a new journey and have a look at what the CCP, the Communist Party of China, has been up to in New Zealand. We've got a working title of this at the moment, calling it The Party, and we're embarking on that journey now. And I'll just to do a bit of a shout-out. <laughs> God's very keen. Get in touch with him. At the, at the risk. Have a look. At, you'll find me on Twitter, and you'll find um, some encrypted uh, email addresses and encrypted uh, ways to get in touch with me. Take that stuff. All jokes aside, uh, pretty seriously. If you do get in touch with us, we'll, we'll look after you. So that's the next journey. But thanks for joining us on the service. Um, it's been good working with you, John. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And I did appreciate that apology earlier on. Uh, <laughs> I've got a note here. Um, Guyan to admire John's intellect. Is that... <laughs> that's right. Do you feel like that's what I've done? I understand that John is supposed to fulfil his role as an apologist for the SIS. <laughs> <laughs> Again. <laughs> Hey, thanks very much for listening uh, to the service. As I say, uh, catch the podcast at all your usual outlets on Apple, on Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcast. And tell your mates, that's us on an epilogue version of the podcast, The Service. Thanks for joining us. Service is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions with support from New Zealand On Air. It's hosted and produced by Guy Espiner and me, John Daniel. Our sound engineers are Adrian Holai and Rangi Powak. Our producer is William Ray. Thanks to Nga Taonga for the archival audio and to Anthony Tonin for the original music throughout the series. The executive producers for RNZ are Tim Watkin and Veronica Schmidt. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.